Hi, I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. You can find me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Our guest today is Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She is a psychiatrist and author, and she's the founder of Gemma, the digital community focused on women's mental health and equity. She is a contributor to the New York Times, and her new book is called Real Self-Care, Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths Not Included. It has been featured widely from Good Morning America to NPR's Code Switch, Talks at Google, The New York Times, Vox, and The Guardian. Pooja has spent thousands of hours taking care of women struggling with burnout, despair, depression, and anxiety. Her work focuses on the intersection of mental health and gender. She frequently delivers keynotes and consults with organizations and Fortune 500 companies to help women and marginalized groups feel empowered and to connect with their agency in the workplace. Visit our website at designlabpod.com. There you can learn more about the guests, get the show notes, and subscribe to our newsletter. Our producer, Rob Puglisi, will send you show notes and his reflections directly into your email inbox whenever a new episode drops. Please, please, please support the podcast. You can do that in a couple of ways. It's so simple to do. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and give us five stars there. You can also give us five stars on Spotify. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Pooja Lakshman. Dr. Pooja Lakshman, welcome to Design Lab. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bon. You and I have so much in common. We both went to Penn undergrad. You went to Jefferson for med school. I am on faculty and I still teach there. And we both have hardcore immigrant parents. And we're also <laughs> both disillusioned by the healthcare system. There's a lot to talk about. Let's talk about your book first. It's called Real Self-Care Crystals, cleanses, and bubble baths. So for those of us who, like me- Crystals, might... cleanses, and bubble baths not included. Oh, not included. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. <laughs> Important <laughs> yeah, that, caveat. That, that, that would be a bad title. <laughs> I, was just, I was just testing you, you know, to see if you remember. Right, right. <laughs> so those of us like me who identify as a dude and who have been harmed by toxic masculinity, does this book apply to us? That's funny. I'm getting this question quite a bit as I've been on the book tour. And so in my practice, I'm a psychiatrist and I specialize in women's mental health. So all my patients are people who identify as women. So the book has, you know, case studies and it's the stories of women, but men are reading it. Yeah. Cis hetero men are reading it and I'm getting emails and messages and DMs from men who are like, yeah, like I really like this. This makes sense. Does that surprise you? It surprised me in the beginning, you know, because I think, interestingly, I have curated my entire career to basically not have to work with men. I am married to a guy. For you. <laughs> well, we're domestic partners, actually. But I have a life partner who is a guy. But all of my work really is with people that have uteruses. And so it's funny to see the other side coming to the book and kind of really resonating with. So I think it's the thought exercises, the metaphors, all of kind of the stuff that's in the book really is about 
how to be a human in the world, in particular, how to be a human who is somebody who comes from a marginalized group. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's been cool to see that, like, the men aren't, like, throwing tomatoes at me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I did not even think about that, honestly, until, like, started researching the topic. Because, like, oh, I was like, oh, this is a great, like, topic for a book. And your principles of real self-care, I I think, are universal. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about faux self-care. What what is that? Yeah. So faux self-care. So the way that I like to describe it is it's the patient who comes in to see me and they're like, well, I finally worked up the nerve, right? To take a half day off work. And I scheduled myself a massage, but I go to the massage and I spend the whole time on the massage table, worried about my to-do list, anxious about my kids, focused on work, ruminating. Mm. And I dropped $200 for this massage. And by the end of it, I'm more stressed out (laughs) after the massage. Or I feel like, okay, maybe I was a little bit, there was some relief, but now I have to go back into the real world. So like it all disappears in five seconds and I have to come back to my desk and there's like 50 emails waiting for me and I have to make up for all of that. That's me. I am that person. Do you feel like this is a personal attack? I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I can identify Um, with that person. Yeah. And that's (laughs) faux self-care. That's faux self-care because you are still going to that massage completely aligned with capitalism, aligned with white supremacy, Mm. aligned with all of these very strong forces that are baked into the society that we live in that says your worth is your productivity. Mm. right? Mm-hmm. You are only worthy if you are working or if you are doing something that has monetary value, yeah. right? Or taking care of your family, right? So that's faux self-care. And, and the other example when it comes to faux self-care is it's the patient who's like, you know, Dr. Lakshman, I'm stressed out. I'm burnt out. I'm not eating well. I'm not sleeping well. And I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my phone that I know I'm supposed to be using, but I don't have any time. And so I feel like my burnout is my fault because I'm lazy or I don't have enough discipline. And so I'm always screaming basically to my patients, like, this isn't your fault. This is social betrayal. I wrote a piece for the New York Times a couple of years ago that was called, it's not burnout, it's betrayal. Mm. And it it was written for an audience of mostly women who work outside the home. And it was sort Mm. of at the height of the pandemic. It was about how you're being asked to make impossible decisions in the context of public health infrastructure that has completely failed you in the context mm. of a childcare system that doesn't exist, especially during the height of the pandemic. It was yeah. really like every family had to fend for themselves. Yeah. So that's both self-care. So the wellness industry's answer to that, right, to all of this is like, well, just take a bubble bath, drink a glass of wine, calm down. It's okay. Why are you so stressed out? And I say like, well, that's, at best, condescending. Mm. And at worst, it's actually quite manipulative. Mm. On this podcast, we talk a lot about how we could design healthier lives. And I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on how we can design real self-care for our lives? Because you have some great principles about that in your book. Yeah. So, right. So the flip side of this is real self-care. So if faux self-care is like a method or something to buy. Mm-hmm. Real self-care is, it's not a noun, it's a verb. It's mm-hmm. actually, it's a process. It's threaded through your whole life. So 
the whole thesis of real self-care is instead of conceptualizing well-being or health or wellness as like taking 15 minutes out of your day to meditate or taking 10 minutes to go for a walk around the block, yeah. instead, real self-care is threaded in every single decision you make in your life. It's like, it's the choice mm -hmm. of like, do I want to be a parent or not? Who's my life partner? What is my job? Like, what is my career? What really matters to me? Those are obviously really hard questions. Yeah. And, but real self-care is actually, it's inside your life. It's not stepping out of your life. It's inside your life and mm -hmm. constructing your life in a way that things are closer to alignment. So the reason that there's four principles is because in order to design a healthy life, it's really hard. <laughs> it's it's so not hard. easy. It's not easy. But even it, you saying that it's possible, right? There's that uh -huh. option for many of us. For some people, there isn't that option, but we can design our lives because we do make choices consciously or subconsciously about our daily lives. Yeah. Yeah. And real self-care, really, if it comes down to it, it's about making conscious choices, recognizing, mm. right, that you're conscious and that yeah. you understand. Because there is, like you said, it's not depending on your social determinants of health, Yeah, depending on this, the color of your skin, your gender identity, how much money you have, whether you're an immigrant, whether you have a partner, right? All those things impact whether you even have a choice. Yeah. So I guess to back it up for a second, that the four principles are principle one, boundaries, principle two, compassion, principle three, values, principle four, power. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I start with boundaries is because to even get to a place where you can make a conscious choice, you first have to recognize and understand that you are separate from the oppressive systems mm -hmm. and that you, your feelings and your preferences are different than your family's feelings and preferences, your partner's mm -hmm. feelings and preferences. And you have to get practice actually voicing and claiming boundaries. Yeah. So I can talk about, I can give some tips on how to do that. Let's start because that resonated with me a lot because I have no boundaries and I've been learning how to establish boundaries. And it is, I was like, why didn't I do this in my twenties? <laughs> like, like why decades later do I learn? Oh, it's good to have boundaries. What What are some like real life examples or tips on, yeah. on how to do that? Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, I think if you're coming from an immigrant family for sure, and definitely an Asian culture, yeah. right? Yeah, boundaries you, are not a thing. Your parents right. are South Asian immigrants. Yes. Mine are East Asian immigrants. And right, like, like work yeah. was seven days a week. And I'm literally supposed to take care of them when they get older. And <laughs> there are no boundaries. Right, right. Everything is communal, right? Decision making is communal in that culture. So it's harder and it's different too when you're coming from different cultures. But you know, it's funny because I think like we hear the word boundaries a lot. Like every therapist on Instagram is talking about boundaries. <laughs> so I think it's like a little bit eye roll. And one, the reason everyone's talking about it is because it is hard. And two, my conceptualization is a little bit different. So mm. I had an aha moment about boundaries when I was, this was in 2016. I was first starting on the faculty at GW. Right. I just graduated residency. I got my dream job at GW. My mentor, who's the director of our women's mental health clinic, she took me out for lunch. And I just want to say GW is George Washington Hospital yes, in yes. Washington, D.C. In Washington, our, D.C. For our <laughs> listeners abroad, very great 
academic medical center, <laughs> like top notch, dream job, totally. <laughs> So she took me out for lunch and her advice was, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail and then you can listen to the what they want and then you can decide. Mm-hmm. And that was like really wild to me because I was coming from being a resident where it's like you have your pager and you get beeped, you get paged and you answer, right? It's like this hyper vigilant. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, sometimes in that context, I was working on full-time faculty. So I was in the office there and it was like, okay, sometimes it's the front desk and they have like a bunch of paperwork and I can say, hello, I'll come around at the end of the day and fill that out. Other times it's like, it's a patient who I know who has ADHD. And if she misses her stimulant for one day, like she could lose her job because she's a lawyer, right? And she really needs it. So like, I'll put in that prescription. So I decide. So your boundary is the pause. Mm. The pause is the boundary. And then you get to say yes, no, or negotiate. Yeah. And especially in medicine, we did not learn that. No. We did and, not learn that. <laughs> and I I learned that just like recently in the last couple of years of, <laughs> of in medicine, people like they don't email, they just like text or call. It doesn't matter 24-7 on weekends. <laughs> and then I had to like go, hey. If like on a Saturday night, people were texting me at work about work related things, like mm-hmm. I was like, "Hey, can we convert this to email?" And can I like wait a couple? <laughs> like I'm not going to respond right away on a Saturday night at ten o'clock to a work related yep. thing. Right. But I felt guilty about that. Right. You're right. Yeah. Well, you feel guilty because your guilt is a symptom of the systems of oppression that we live inside. It's not just because I'm Korean. No, no. (laughs) I mean, there's some of that too, but it's because the entire medical system is built on underpaid labor. Yeah. Right? And the whole system is powered by residents and students who have tons of student loan debt on their backs who are, you know, now part of this machine yeah. that keeps all of these systems going. And the output is the productivity, mm. the physician productivity, the healthcare worker productivity, right? So the machine, the whole system stays in place because of healthcare worker guilt. Yeah. Right? We use terms like you're a strong resident, you're a weak resident, or right. a strong medical student and a weak right. medical student. I'm like, that's like a terrible way to describe human beings. Right, strong right. and weak. Right. And like the other piece with this, so, and I've had to learn this the hard way at many points in my life. I keep relearning it. But, you know, I think like, especially when you're talking to doctors, like everyone's like, well, I can't say no because like somebody might die, like someone's bleeding out. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not telling you to say no when someone's bleeding out in front of yeah. you. I'm telling you to take the pause when you're a Saturday night out at dinner with friends and you get a work test, right? Let's, talk about context. Let's also like understand there's a volume dial here, but that fear of like, well, if I'm a good doctor, I have to say yes all the time, be there all the time, be on all the time. Yeah. That's insidious. And it's been, I don't know, maybe this is a strong word, but I do feel like it is kind of propaganda, right? Mm -hmm. Like of just keeping the whole system going. And we know, and I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, you know, just how abusive it could be to- residents to to black students, right? To people from marginalized groups. 
So the no isn't always available, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're an intern, if you're a med mm -hmm. student who's listening, you're probably like, well, yeah, Pooja, this is all great, but I'm on my surgery rotation and I just, I need to be there, right? Yeah. At 4 a.m. because I need to be there. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that you can always say no, but the pause is always available, right? Mm -hmm. You can always pause and think. And then if you understand or if you pause and then you say, hmm, that request, like I have to say yes right now because I'm a student or I, whatever. But my goal for myself is a year from now, two years from now, I want to be in a position where I'm closer to the no, mm. where the no is safer, yeah. where I have other systems in place, maybe other income streams, maybe other, you know, whatever it is, so that the no is more accessible. Mm. One symptom I have that you have as well as we're both allergic to rest. <laughs> yes. What principle can apply to us in your book? Yeah. Is there, any, how, hope? How Is there any hope? How to address? Yeah. How to address <laughs> that pathophysiology? What's that mechanism there? What what principle and advice yeah. do you have for us? Yeah. So I talk about rest in the compassion chapter. So with value mm. two, self compassion, and it's funny. I didn't even when people were reading the manuscript, somebody had uh -huh. to remind me to put rest in that chapter because I did not put it in. <laughs> and it's something I still struggle with. Yeah, you're so busy. I'm so busy. So and practice as a physician, you wrote a book, you have your own <laughs> startup as well that we'll talk about, Gemma. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. So I've had to learn how to rest. I'm still not very good at it, but I'm getting better. Mm. So while writing the book, I was going through IVF in order to get pregnant. And my son is now almost a year old but I got off my writing schedule because I was doing IVF, which is terrible. You have to go to all these appointments and all, mm. there's all this stuff. It's a full-time um, job. Full-time yeah. job. Yeah, full-time job. Yeah. So I had set out this like outline for myself and I was, I was going to get all the chapters done. And then of course I was late, but I had to just say like, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Like you can't, like what we were talking about with the massage, when you're addicted to work, you're still aligned with that capitalistic racist system mm. that is built on white supremacy, slavery, right? On this mm. way of being where we're extracting productivity and value at every single second. So I have to balance that with the fact that, you know, I spent the past like six to seven years of my life designing my life and career to really be aligned with my values, mm. right? All the stuff that I do now, I'm really passionate about and it really matters to me and I really care about it. and if I burn out, and I do burn out sometimes, but when I do, uh, right, like it's like, that's not sustainable. Like this is a marathon. Mm -hmm. I need to be in this for the long haul. And I have to trust and learn that rest is part of the productivity cycle. Like mm -hmm. you have to give it to yourself because it, it actually fuels those mm -hmm. moments of peak productivity. And so one thing that I have been writing about in our Gemma has a, a Substack newsletter. It's called Therapy Takeaway. And one of the pieces I wrote for it recently. I just signed up oh, today. Oh. Even though I'm a dude, I just signed up. <laughs> great, great, great. <laughs> because I've been in this book launch and going, 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 I decided in June and July, I'm going to take Fridays off, like yeah. fully off. I'm going to take off. And June and July is going to be like a slow time for me. Like I need to just give mm -hmm. that to myself and I need to trust that 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 everything else will be there, right? Yeah. Because there's ego involved in this, for yeah. sure. And I think especially in medicine, as physicians, we really love to like feel that sense of like, I'm doing everything and I got yeah. it and I'm the superhero. And so you got to, that's actually destructive. Like that yeah. ego ultimately 
doesn't end well, will land you in, in harder places. And it never ends. I mean, I'm always envious of other faculty and of other people. When I look at their CVs, I feel like a loser. And I'm like, and I'm like a full professor with an endowed <laughs> professorship. And I look at people's CVs like, I need to publish more, get more grants <laughs> or be a better educator. I'm like, it never ends. And and, mm -hmm. and I love what you talk. It's like getting rest is an active design process. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not a passive process. You kind of kind of have to plan for it, right? Yeah. 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 You have to plan for it. I was actually talking to my sister who she is not a doctor because she's the younger sibling. So she didn't have to go to med school. Uh, just like my <laughs> sister. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've been working for myself for like six years now. And I only just like over the past few months had the realization that since I don't have a boss, I have to give myself PTO. Uh, and she was like, she's like, Kota, it took me so long to realize. <laughs> I mean, and granted, like when I take time off and I get paid, but you know, right. Like, but it's like, but you have to, you have to, you have to give it to yourself. Right. And yeah. and I love what you said, Bond, because I remember looking at your Twitter account. This was, a, this must've been a year or two ago, maybe. And thinking, wow, like what a cool guy. Like you're doing so much, like the design lab, like innovation and feeling envious. So I think it's like, we all feel oh, like, it's I, like I you feel envious yourself. of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's like, we all feel that way when we see people that are doing cool things. And like, yeah. it's so easy to get caught up in that measuring stick mentality. Yeah. That is ingrained in yeah. medicine for sure. What are some like practical things around this like self-care practice? I think in your book, you talk about a patient who was doing yoga, but that stressed her out more because it was almost like this goal-oriented thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you talk about that example and yeah. give us some advice of, of what we can do to design some activities that will give us rest and not that we think will give us rest or yeah. self-care? Yeah. So the story that you're talking about is a patient who she was somebody with like, a, you know, a really hardcore corporate job and she got laid off. And then she just like went very deep into wellness and was like the yoga star. Right. And like running the five K's and had like, you know, the Excel spreadsheets. And she was just bringing that same personality, yeah. that same overachiever type A perfectionistic uh -huh. to the wellness. And it was sort of like, well, that's that's not that's like the opposite of what yeah. you're supposed to be doing at yoga. <laughs> And, and so again, coming like, right, that's like the faux self-care, but you know, it's funny that you asked me that because one of the other big principles of the book is that I can't tell you what to do. Mm. Like, I don't know what your answer is. Right. Mm. And part of this is because of my own history. You know, I left my resident when, about a decade ago, I was very burnt out and distressed about the terribleness of medicine. And so I left my marriage, moved into a wellness commune in San Francisco, and then dropped out of my residency and spent two years in this world that my parents were, of course, like very <laughs> worried about. And that um, that is huge to leave residency is like, yeah, yeah, that's giving up your identity. Yeah, like, it was. Yeah. It was. It was a big thing. And but what I learned, I was with that group for two years. And what I learned is that the wellness world, the quote unquote spiritual world has just as many hypocrisies and inconsistencies mm. as mainstream medicine. Yeah. And no matter what industry you're in, no matter what fields you're in, there's going to be oppression and misogyny and cruelty, right? And so it's not about just like finding one safe space and then like 
believing that that could be the answer to all your problems. Like it's actually about the internal work because every system, like I have patients that work in law, in tech, in medicine, Mm. in education. Like, unfortunately in America, like every system is terrible. Mm. (laughs) Every industry is terrible. So you have to like find your own internal sense. And so your real self-care, again, it's not a noun, it's a verb. You're the only one that knows what the thing is for you. Mm. And so I'll give an example because one of the other important lessons to take away for folks who are listening from this conversation, if there's one thing that you take away about like real self-care, real self-care always leads to shaking up the status quo Mm -hmm. in your relationships, in your workplace, in your social systems. Because real self-care, the reason that it's real is that it leads to collective change. Mm. So I had a patient who came to me originally because she was depressed and had anxiety. And we got that under control with medication and therapy. And then we started working on like some of these bigger questions of like, well, what do you really want for your life? You know, she had two kids. I was like, okay, well, like now that your kids aren't like super little anymore, like how do you take time back for yourself? Like, what do you want to write? Like these big things. Yeah. And what came out of that was that she realized she was actually very angry at her husband (laughs) because they, well, because they had two kids and he had never asked for paternity leave because he worked in startups and it was always like really small teams. And he just felt like it was going to be too much of a burden for everybody else. And so she got pregnant with her third baby and she said like, no, I really, I need you to ask. Like, I need you to show up. I need you to take a risk, to be willing to take a risk for our family. Yeah, they might say no, but I still need you to be willing to ask. And he did ask, and his company actually said yes. And that went on to impact everybody else that worked Mm -hmm. there. It went on to impact future people that came. And my patient, you know, she wasn't trying to be an activist or an advocate. Mm -hmm. She was just trying to not hate her husband and not get divorced, right? Mm -hmm. This was purely selfish on her side, Uh right? But because her real self care, it wasn't a bubble bath, right? It was like getting her needs met. That led to the cascade effects. Mm. So that's when I'm talking about real self-care, that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying like, you know, for healthcare workers in particular, right? We're the people, like we're the ones who have to change this terrible system. Yeah. Some of us, like I'll be the first to say like my response was to like peace out a little bit and shield myself. And so now like I'm building Gemma, I have a private practice. I do supervise residents at GW, yeah. but I've created it. So I only have to do the things that I really like doing. Yeah. Not everybody has that flexibility, And so if you're inside the system, then you have to figure out like, what are your boundaries? And then who are your allies, right? Because we have to work together. And then how do you hold people accountable? But in order to do that, you have to actually be taking care of yourself. And you have to not think that that's selfish. You have to, like Audre Lorde said, it's Mm self-preservation, right? It's not a luxury. It is self-preservation. You mentioned Gemma. Mm -hmm. What is that? Yes, yes. So Gemma is my women's mental health digital education platform. I founded Gemma in 2020, actually. Oh, yeah, like right recently. in the beginning of the pandemic. Wow. Uh-huh. And it first started off as just Zoom classes with me as a perinatal psychiatrist because there's only so many people that I can see in my private practice. And I was on Instagram. What is that, a perinatal? Oh, perinatal yeah. is it's like pregnancy postpartum. Okay. So I take yeah. care of new moms, women who are going through maternal mental health issues like postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. 
And I had had this Instagram account where I was getting all these DMs from women, like asking things like, oh, like, is it okay for me to be on Zoloft when I'm pregnant? And, you know, and obviously I can't give medical advice on social media, but it kind of sparked something for me because I was like, oh, like there needs to be like an actual space where you can get evidence-based information because we know there's so much, there's already such issues with access when it comes to mental health services. Oh my gosh. So I, right. Huge. So I started Gemma and it was just these Zoom classes that I was teaching. And I realized really quickly that I didn't want Gemma just to be for rich white ladies, Mm. to be totally frank. But I didn't want to add to the equity problems that were already Uh there. And so I started talking to my now co-founder, Dr. Callie Cyrus, who is a Black queer shrink. And she was at Yale and is now at Johns Hopkins and and has a private practice and does community psychiatry. And and she came on as a co-founder. And then we started talking to Dr. Lucy Hutner, who's a repro psychiatrist in Uh Brooklyn, who works with us as a consultant. And so we're basically building the masterclass of women's Mm. mental health. And so it's not therapy. It's not medication. It is courses. It's community. We're on WhatsApp. We have these WhatsApp threads. So one of them is called hard shit, where you just talk about like all the hard shit, like racism, identity, privilege. Another one is like coping skills, where you can take the classes where we talk about like same type of stuff that's in the book, like different exercises. And then you're on this thread with other women who are trying to work on these things, because it's really important when you start questioning these systems of oppression need other people in your life who are also asking these questions and trying to make different choices. It's kind of like this online mental health gym class. Maybe. Yeah. And, you know, we we've done some market research and and also research on Gemma customers because we've had maybe almost like a thousand folks have come through at different points. And so we did a bunch of research and and many of the not all, but like a good number are also in therapy. Right. But it's sort of complementary. Right. Because you're Mm -hmm. learning. It's more didactic, but there's the community component. And then you can be in therapy and you can say to your therapist, hey, I was talking about this at Gemma or somebody brought this up or somebody said this. And it's kind of a nice adjunct. And then the other thing that we're launching in the fall is actually professional education classes. So we're going to be doing... I saw that. That looks cool. Yeah. We're going to be doing real self-care for healthcare workers. We're going to be doing reducing your oppressive footprint that Callie is teaching and then Lucy and Dr. Molly Dickens, who is a stress physiologist, are teaching Unflipping the Script, which is on pregnancy and stress and mental health. So that's for OBs and, and nurses and midwives and doulas and anybody in that kind of birth space. How can people sign up? Yes. Yeah, so our web is GemmaWomen.com, G-E-M-M-A. Uh-huh. And then we're on Instagram at Join Gemma. And then our, our newsletter is Therapy Takeaway. Cool. It's on Substack. So if you look at any of those places, you'll see all the links and things like that. So yeah, so we're kind of growing this and we're building it and, and we're bootstrapped and we're just sort of like, for me, it's, it is actually part of my self-care in that it's creative for me. Mm. It's it's me like sort of dreaming and, and trying to do something different and, and getting to do it with friends. And it gives people an option. It's so hard, like outside of therapy, yeah. Like, well, what what is there? There's just these products. Well, there's that Instagram. You get sold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's Instagram and <laughs> right. But even like finding a therapist is harder. Like the mental yeah. health industry is broken. Like I have a therapist, but I'm like, well, she's like booked to yeah. whatever. She can't take any more clients. And yeah. like I don't even know as a physician where to recommend people to. It's so difficult. Right. Like I haven't taken a new patient 
for probably two years, unfortunately. Yeah. And I feel really guilty about that. But with your book, you're definitely going to not going to be, that's probably going to be like for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> well, and that's why I started Gemma because I'm like, there has to be something else. And also we want to educate other mental health professionals in uh... bringing the social determinants of health into therapy too, right? Yeah. And like, because there's so much that can be done or needs to be done in terms of education on the, the mental health side for professionals. Yeah. But yeah, I think I feel the same powerlessness that non-mental health professionals feel around mm. like, how do we increase the workforce? Like, how do we meet this crisis? Right. Yeah. And so that Gemma is one, one answer that we're kind of trying out to see. And, and so far it's been really going awesome and, and people really like it. And, and we're, we're kind of in that like ideating space too. We're trying different stuff and I'll be excited to report back, <laughs> you know, and tell you hopefully we'll learn more, but I think it's important. I think it's important yeah. to like be like in the work that you do, you know, kind of be creative and, and to think about how we're designing all this yeah, stuff. I love that. My favorite question is my last question. If I were to come visit you or if a listener were to come visit you, where would you take us out to eat? Yes. Well, I was thinking about because there's so many different there's like I'm in Austin, Texas. Oh, you're in Austin. Okay. I'm in Austin. Yeah. I love Austin. Yeah. The tacos are so good. Oh, there's so many great tacos. So but there's like a classic. It's called Matt's El Rancho. And it's like the classic Tex-Mex like queso it's like very texas it's very mm. austin it's not fancy it's not fancy at all they don't take reservations you just show up there's always a crowd and you know they have margaritas and it's just it's a very it's kind of cheesy it's like this very sort of like austin you know like the broken spoke is down the street but that's one of my favorite places and we always whenever we have guests in town we always go there because it's like it's the austin vibe too like not pretentious it's just like very chill and I'll say one other place is it's a brewery. It's called Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that also is very Austin vibe because they have live music. They have food trucks. So it's food trucks uh, that are yeah. there and tacos. The beer is great. And then they have like this huge playground. So the other thing I love about Austin oh, is I have like kids. Oh, people bring kids everywhere. Kids and dogs. Kids and dogs will be there for the concert, <laughs> hanging out. It's like it's just a very family friendly laid back place with like great tacos and beer and you can just hang out and there's like picnic tables. And so those are my two. I'll just give one more just to round it out. <laughs> yeah. So fancy, if you want fancy, and this is very fancy. Uh -huh. We went when it was like a little book celebration. It's called Sushi Bar. And it's like one of those omakase places Ooh, where it's just favorite. like the chef's table. Yeah. It's really hard to get a reservation. It was like a complete like miracle that we did it's pricey. It's really pricey, but it's worth it. It's like a special, very special type of thing. But that's another place that has a special, a warm spot in my heart. Yeah. So, so well, I gave you three restaurants. I, I love it. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> We're going to put a link to all those great restaurants in the show notes, as well as a link to your amazing book. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Fun. the show. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, and I can't wait for our next conversation. I'm sure there will be one. <laughs> you can find Pooja on Twitter and Instagram at P-O-O-J-A-L-A-K-S-H-M-I-N. And go to our show notes to find the link to buy her book. Rob Pugisi produces Design Lab. Editing is done by Fernando Carreros. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.